Thank you, Mr. Johansson. I'm now going to recognize members for five minutes for questions, and I will begin the process. Mr. Johansson, what I'm hearing from you say in your testimony is that um, you can help, that your members can help in the California Farm Bureau. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think it's certainly in any sort of disaster, a natural disaster, the first responders are often the, the landowners or neighbors. I mean, historically, there would be smoke on the horizon, and everyone would respond. Um, I think uh, uh, right now we're seeing devastating floods in Tulare Lake now reemerging down in Tulare and Kings County. It is, it is farmers, it is ranchers who are responding to, to shore up those levees. The same happens also in, in wildfire situations. But most importantly, too, as we, as we uh, grow upon the, the good neighbor authority, um, is including those locals, those counties who understand um, uh, those fire sheds. And perhaps it's burned before, maybe on a smaller scale, but understand how it responded 30 to 40 years ago. So certainly the front lines there can be your, can be your locals on the ground and your farmers and ranchers. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Heitheker, um, in my opening remarks, I said we can respect our environmental laws and we can move quickly at the same time. From your time as a forest supervisor, would you agree that the Forest Service can utilize categorical exclusions to respect environmental laws and move quickly at the same time? Yes, thank you for the question. <clears throat> uh, the Forest Service has internally made concerted efforts to streamline our processes, and, and that includes a nationwide monitoring program. Um, an effort started a while ago, environmental analysis, analysis and decision making helped us look at um, ways to be more efficient internally. Uh, as you know, as we as we testified on prior, 85% of our NEPA decisions are made through categorical exclusions. That's about 1,400 a year, and that's up from 70% around 10 years ago. All of those categorical exclusions comply with all statutory, regulatory, and policy requirements to implement that work on federal do you, lands. Do you believe that categorical exclusions undermine bedrock environmental laws? Uh, they do not. They have to comply with all of those environmental laws. They, they are just another category of NEPA decisions. It's just excluded from analysis due to the fact that, they, that they've been determined with CEQ to not have a significant uh, impact to the human environment. Uh, with your um, first answer, this is something where this uh, committee and subcommittee is going to be watching very closely is that we are getting the treatments done because that is something that is very concerning with all the additional money that has been going out that uh, there are a significant number of treatments that are uh, getting done. Uh, one more question, is the 10,000 acre categorical exclusion that is currently only available for the Tahoe Basin an example of where the Forest Service has been able to move quickly while respecting environmental laws? Yes, I think if we look across our landscapes and how we operate, there's, um, you know, the, the size of our decisions is often, you know, in excess of 10,000 acres, 30,000, 40,000, where we find that there are no significant impacts. And um, having tools to help us do that work at scale faster is, is a benefit to us. Mr. Desotel, you um, commented about how the drafting error in regards to the Good Neighbor Authority, I believe it was in the 2018 Farm Bill, uh, uh, it's my understanding you had to f were forced to abandon um, a project on the Colville National Forest. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Uh, the Congress expanded the authority for tribes and counties to enter into the agreements, but later in the act in a section that would have allowed them to expend revenues generated from forest products, they, tribes and counties were not included in that section, and How this many, bill would address that. 
how many acres of fire-prone federal lands do you estimate um, you would have been able to treat if that would have been in place? So that project area was roughly 30,000 acres prior, 40,000 acres, but the west quarter of that burned in the 2015 fire season for us. So that's something we're currently working on under a Tribal Forest Protection Act agreement, but uh, we've seen significant fires all around that area since the 2015 fire season. So if you could have done that treatment under the, if the 2018 law would have allowed that treatment, um, uh, how many acres would have that helped not um, succumb to fire? So it's hard to predict how much we would have stopped it because 2018 was a significant year, worse fire behavior than I'd seen at any point in my career, but almost certainly it would have reduced the fire effects. And I think it falls into one of those scenarios where we just aren't moving fast enough that we're seeing projects burn during the planning process because the planning processes are lengthy. Uh, Mr. Johansson, um, can we address this wildfire crisis without uh, some reforms of NEPA? Well, I mean, I think... Can you do it solely with funding? Or is it going no. to take some reforms? No, it, it does take reforms. I mean, in California, we enjoyed a $100 billion surplus in our state budget. Um, it's easy to throw money at a project, and we've thrown a lot of money at uh, trying to address this at Cal in California. But as I've said before, just throwing money at a, at a problem such as wildfire and, and forest thinning doesn't work unless you're actually doing the project and the project gets finished. It, can't, it, it has to be expedited. We see, even locally, I mean, you heard if you're doing a mechanical thinning project, it could take up to three years to get approval in the forest, four years if it's a control burn, but theoretically, those are averages. We hear stories and I get phone calls of frustrations from people in Murphy's, California and Calaveras County who are on their seventh and eighth year. So, uh, the expedited process has to go into effect in terms of how we, you know, we rely on those forest plans that our foresters put together. Uh, and, and they're thorough and extensive and take a very long time. Uh, that, that should ultimately be what drives and moves forward projects and not just. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, my time has expired and I'd like to recognize sure. the ranking member for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Deputy Chief, as I mentioned in my opening statement, I've introduced the Forest Service Flexible Housing Partnership Act, along with my colleague, Senator Bennett, in the Senate, which extends an existing authority that I know is being utilized right now in my district in Colorado, in the White River National Forest. Uh, that particular project, as you may know, plans to develop 163 affordable housing units in a community adjacent to the country's most visited national forest. The project includes a set-aside for Forest Service employees. Now, in your testimony, you mentioned that the lack of affordable housing is a major barrier to recruiting and retaining your workforce, including the wildfire workforce. And I wonder if you might be able to provide some insight or perhaps, perhaps expound a bit on how your agency works with project proponents to strike an appropriate balance between supporting both federal employees and the general housing needs. Yes, thank you. For the question, I am familiar with that project. I've worked closely with the Forest Supervisor, Scott Fitzwilliams, down there on the White River, and we do appreciate the authority given to us in that act. It's given us an opportunity that, while it has taken some time to figure out the nuances, as you can imagine, it's a complicated process, but the ability to partner in areas, especially in, in um, 
neighboring national forests where Summit County, for instance, the housing prices are exorbitant. There's not a land available to develop homes. Um, we have the land. We're able to work with these partners and uh, uh, through this leasing authority, provide affordable housing to their employees and our employees. It's a, it's a great opportunity, and we're looking forward to working um, on uh, expansion of it and continuing to build more in, uh, in the housing world. Well, I thank you for your remarks, and uh, I couldn't agree more, and it underscores why the the Forest Service Flexible Housing Partnership Act is so important in terms of ensuring that the Forest Service has these authorities uh, into the future. Ultimately, the bill is about collaboration and cooperation, and that's something that uh, we take great pride in in Colorado, and I think this is an example, a way in which uh, the Forest Service can apply that same model, perhaps in other communities across the country. I wonder if you, uh, I suspect the agency has given some thought internally uh, as to what other potential sites might exist uh, to the extent that this legislation is enacted and, and the authority is extended. Yes, absolutely. We have, as you know, affordable housing, firefighter pay, two of the biggest barriers to getting more firefighters on, retaining firefighters, investing in their health and well-being. And as, as I mentioned earlier, the number of communities that are interadjacent to national forest systems that have housing costs that are just a plain affordable to people is, is a, a challenge that we're trying to overcome. And we have a couple other pilot opportunities that we're looking at and really looking forward to um, successfully implementing the project on the White River. Well, again, I thank you for your testimony. I think this is a program worth supporting and extending, and so I'm hopeful that my colleagues will support it. And with that, I will yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the ranking member. I'd like to turn to the gentleman from California, Mr. McClintock, for his five minutes of questioning. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Dugan, the provisions of H.R. 188 have been in place for nearly eight years now in the Tahoe Basin Management Unit. And it's already been noted that uh, when the Caldor Fire hit a treated tract, as it barreled down on the city of South Lake Tahoe, uh, uh, it, uh, it laid down and the firefighters were able to stop it. Meanwhile, in the adjacent El Dorado forest, U.S. foresters had been trying to treat the trestle project for more than a decade. They knew it was critical to, predicting, or to protecting the, the, the town of Grizzly Flats, but the laws and the litigation arising from those laws had stalled the project, and it was still pending when the Caldor fire hit the tract, exploded, and utterly destroyed the entire town. Does the categorical exclusion under this authority, or, so I guess the first question is, why shouldn't we extend that to the 193 acres of the U.S. Forest Service? Can you think of any reason not to? Well, I would submit to you as environmental safeguards, even under a categorical exclusion, uh, where we've got compliance built in. So I see no reason why we wouldn't want to expand that categorical exclusion to all of these areas that we need to treat. We've I shown it works. As, as Environmentalists possible, are happy. Before, before we lose another town of Grizzly Flats, or a few years back, a town of Paradise. Uh, have you observed a difference between the um, private forests in the Sierra and uh, those under the care of the federal government? Well, reality is yes. The private forests are able to respond. The private forests are also able to reforest quicker. So there's a lot of issues there. But when it comes to the topic for today's hearing, absolutely. And that's why we need the categorical exemptions. Because Mr. we know Johansson? the system works so slow in permitting. Mr. Johansson, uh, what have you observed regarding the condition between the private forests and the federal forests in the Sierra? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Mr. Dugan. It, 
it can be quite obvious, even traveling on uh, Interstate 80 uh, there in California, going to Nevada into the Tahoe Basin, you can you can definitely tell there is a difference in terms of of active management of the of those forest grounds on on private forest grounds. Yeah, you know when when they say well it's climate change, I think how clever of the climate to know exactly the boundary line between the private and federal lands and only devastate those on the federal side of the boundary line. <laughs> Mr. Heithecker, I'm wondering about something. Half of California's forests are privately on the other half are administered by the Forest Service. And as has just been pointed out, you can tell the boundary lines between the private and federal lands just by the condition of the forests. Private lands are usually healthy. They're well-managed. Tree density is matched to the ability of the land to support it. And they actually make money doing that. The federal lands, the lands that you are responsible for, are densely overgrown, uh, stressed, and dying. And you lose money doing that. You know, five years ago, I toured the footprint of the, uh, of the King Fire. The, the private lands, owned by Sierra Pacific Industries in this case, had been completely salvaged. Uh, and the funds generated from that salvage had been used to suppress brush growth. And, and you could see new, young, healthy trees that were already planted and growing. The federal lands, again, the lands that you are responsible for, had been abandoned. Uh, six feet of brush had grown up on those forest lands. No trees had been salvaged. And so all you could see was dry brush and dry rotted trees falling on, on top of that dry brush, a perfect fire stack. In fact, the firefighters in the Caldor Fire tell me when the fire hit the King Fire footprint, it literally exploded because of the neglect of your agency. So. Private landowners make money keeping their forests in healthy condition, and you somehow manage to lose money keeping our forests in decrepit condition. Would you care to explain yourself? I'll give it a shot. Thank you for that. The, you know, the, I, would, I would say that we are working currently with the National Alliance of Forest Owners on a couple of agreements to help streamline some of that work across boundaries. We recognize the importance How of that. How do you explain the difference? You lose money keeping our forests in decrepit condition. Private landowners make money keeping their forests in, in healthy condition. I mean, why should anybody listen uh, to your agency uh, on, on matters of forest management given that record? I'd like to think that the agency has a very stout and would educated you, group of scientists supporting our Would you like to explain why the difference? Well, our agency is guided by different rules and standards in those private lands. I think you're aware of that, which is National Forest Management Act, Multiple Use Sustained Act, the National Environmental well, Policy Act, and others. supposed to improve the condition of the forest. We've lived with them for 50 years now. I think we're entitled to ask, how are the forests doing? And the answer is absolutely damning. And for your agency to stand in the way of any legislation designed to remediate that problem, I find appalling. I yield back. Gentleman yields. I turn to the uh, committee chairman, Mr. Want to move on? We are going to go to a subcommittee chairman, Mr. Stauber, for five minutes. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Um, St. Louis County, Minnesota is the largest county east of the Mississippi River, as well as my home county. St. Louis County is a checkerboard of federal and non-federal land. It is also one of the best examples of an area where all parties need to work together, be it the Bureau of Land Management or the U.S. Forest Service that manage our federal lands, 
or the local tribes and counties that manage our non-federal lands. Given this necessary collaboration that I have seen in northern Minnesota, I support enabling our leaders to work together and expanding good neighbor authority. I am proud to support H.R. 1450, the Treating Tribes and Counties as Good Neighbors Act, which has been introduced by my good friend and colleague, Congressman Falcher. Congressman Falcher has been a leader in our conference on forest management, and I want to thank him for introducing this important piece of legislation that builds upon the success of good neighbor authority. Mr. Heathacker, in 2018, Congress expanded the Good Neighbor Authority in the Farm Bill, expanding the program to counties and federally recognized Indian tribes. Can you speak to how participation in Good Neighbor Authority agreements increased following the changes made in the 2018 Farm Bill? Yeah, thank you. I think as it's, it's been pointed out here, it's important to note that I think as it was a, an oversight or a, an omission from that language to not have revenues retained by the tribes and the counties has been a barrier. Um, with that said, we still have worked with um, numerous states, and including um, the state of Arkansas, where I came from, to leverage that capacity to work across boundaries to implement um, restoration treatments that do include timber value as well as prescribed fire. Uh, critical to collaborate with multiple agencies within each of those states, whether it's Fish and Wildlife to protect critical habitat, uh, to work with them uh, on <clears throat> uh, administering the timber sales, allow them to generate the revenue to help them do that work and build capacity to support that work. So um, absolutely think that we um, will benefit if we can get the retention of revenues for tribes and counties and allow us to expand that opportunity as, as was already shared today, and as you know, the opportunities exist and where we can make those more effective and, and more accessible, it's gonna benefit all of us. I appreciate uh, your comments. Uh, Mr. DeSatel, you represent over 60 tribes that make up the Intertribal Timber Council, and in your testimony, you noted the benefits that you have seen under the Good Neighbor Authority Program. Would you say that the tribes that you represent have missed out on the potential added benefits of Good Neighbor Authority since the 2018 Farm Bill only allows states to utilize funds from timber sales? Uh, yes, sir. I think if, if the authority had been expanded or the language had been corrected early, that tribes would have utilized that authority early to, to take advantage of the funding that's available in the infrastructure bill to help support Good Neighbor Agreements. Because for the states that I'm familiar with, Washington State, where I live, being one of them, the state had to put in essentially seed money to stand up the program to establish staffing and develop the project planning and NEPA analysis on the first projects to generate enough revenue to support that work going forward. So with this funding, it would have given tribes the opportunity to generate that revenue, stand up that program, build that capacity to utilize that authority for an extended period of time to do that treatment that's needed on adjacent federal land. Uh, with the hopeful passage of this legislation, they'll be able to just uh, do exactly what you stated, uh, invest more, and the money comes uh, directly to them. It is clear that since its introduction over two decades ago, the Good Neighbor Authority Program has facilitated co-stewardship of our federal and non-federal lands and has brought federal land managers, states, counties, and our tribes together. 
Over these past two decades, Congress has taken great steps to improve and expand good neighbor authority. And I, <coughs> excuse me, and I commend the provisions in the 2018 Farm Bill. However, we have a great opportunity right now to continue this success story and make changes that fully take advantage of the good neighbor authority in Mr. Fulcher's legislation. I strongly support allowing counties and tribes to utilize proceeds from timber sales to take additional steps to work together and protect our federal and non-federal lands. And I look forward to supporting Mr. Fulcher's bill that will make this fix. It's important to recognize that the three entities, states, counties, and tribes uh, can take advantage of this and, and allow um, healthy forests and conservation along with um, uh, financial uh, security with the, those funds returns back to those same entities. And Mr. Chair, yield back. Thank you, Mr. Stauber. Next, I'd like to turn to the gentlewoman from New Mexico for five minutes for questions. Thank you so much, Chairman Tiffany, Ranking Member Nagus, and for uh, the members on this conversation. As you know, I always look forward to it when we have the bipartisan support for including tribes, recognizing them as uh, sovereign nations, and that we must include them in our various legislation to ensure that they are able to take care of uh, and participate as sovereign nations in our, um, our, our many programs that we have on the federal level. Thank you so very much for your testimony. Uh, I'm also really pleased to uh, have in today's hearing uh, the inclusion of ranking members uh, for Service Flexible Housing Partnership Act because affordable housing is important everywhere I go in my district. As we know, the issue of affordable housing is important across this country. Uh, workforce housing is very, very important. I focused on that both in, before I got to Congress and then in, when I'm able to through our community projects, through our congressionally supported projects. And in places that are really gorgeous and beautiful, uh, it's sometimes even harder, right, because the, uh, the, the the, the market prices, uh, regular folks just out of the market. Uh, and so in places like Santa Fe and Taos, uh, we really see that as very important. Uh, Mr. Heithecker, can you uh, discuss a little bit more about the ability to lease administrative sites um, that would benefit uh, the Forest Service and how what that looks like on the ground? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the question. It is, uh, it's, it's a unique authority for us. I mean, just think about it. If you're a private landowner and you want to lease part of your property, let somebody else build a house for, and have other people live there. I mean, it's just, uh, just uh, the complexities of working that out. It's an, it's, an, it's an interesting arrangement. So the authorities given within that act are really, uh, they're new. We're trying to figure those out and we're learning as we go. Um, but that, that exact situation is what we're working on in Dillon, Colorado, which is we have a chunk of administrative land that's being underutilized. We have both the city, the county, the state, and the Forest Service who have uh, employees who can't afford housing there. So through that authority, we're allowed to lease the land to the uh, uh, city in this, in, this, in this case and have them build housing to basically offset the cost of that lease. They allow us to have our um, employees stay there. So it's a really beneficial, mutually agreeable um, arrangement that provides affordable housing to both that, the city of Dillon and the Forest Service. And also in Colorado, we're working with another group to look at another model to work directly with the state on how we can accomplish that in other communities throughout, throughout that um, area and others in the country. 
Right, and I look forward to you uh, looking at uh, sites in New Mexico uh, because Absolutely. I think the ability to, to utilize lands that are available to their best purpose is part of that. To touch a little bit about, you said how the complexities of doing it. What does it do in terms of being able to recruit and retain employees to know that they will have housing close by? Because if they don't have it there, what would a commute look like? Well, it's, it's really one of the biggest challenges we have, as I mentioned, in addition to firefighter pay. But if you're a firefighter coming in, you're working these really long and grueling shifts, really risking your life in many cases. And folks can't afford to, folks live in their cars. I mean, that's what they're up against in, in these, some of these communities. I mean, the, the community of Dillon and itself, Summit County in general, is you know, one, of the, one of the more expensive areas that we have employees. And the, the fact that um, we can create at least some solution to allow folks across these other sectors to, to live there and be able to afford to live there. I mean, it's, it's a night and day experience for them, a, a, change, a game changer from my perspective. You know, and I think that touching upon that we are asking somebody to risk their lives, to help protect our forests, because they are often, you know, there's lots of important reasons to suppress, you know, to address wildfires, but they're sleeping in the cars. Yeah. Right? And, and this is the same thing in terms of when we're looking at pay right? and making sure that we have presumptions with regard to the illnesses that they cover. So I think that recognizing there is a, a wide range of needs that those who are pro at greatest risk need, uh, that ranging from housing to pay to uh, uh, you know, the presumptions with regards to illness is very important. So thank you for answering those questions and thank you for introducing the bill. And with that, I yield back. The gentlewoman yields. Uh, next, the gentleman from Oregon, Mr. Bentz, for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, witnesses, for being here. Uh, I'm start with Mr. Or, or I guess it's Deputy Chief Heidecker. Uh, the, the the HR 934 proposes uh, to require the Secretary of Agriculture to carry out the activities to suppress wildfires. Uh, in meeting with uh, various timber companies back in Oregon, they asked me if I would just do one thing when I got here, and that is to convince the Forest Service to put out the fire the moment they see it, as opposed to allowing it to burn. This legislation would do exactly that. Would you suggest that this is legislation is not necessary right now? <clears throat> yeah, thank you for the question. You know, the the as we stated in our testimony, you know, the concerns that we would have is that we would lose tools that are critical for us fighting fires. And, and um, you know, if you look at our data, it's 96 or 98% of all of our fires are caught within the first 24 hours. So you have a very fall, uh, small percentage that are not, and I think it's 1% that we currently either monitor or manage for resource benefit. Let me just suggest that when I was out on the side of the various mountains, we drove around uh, spending a couple of days looking at where the fires had not been put out as soon as they could have been. Uh, I will share with you that the damage was horrific. And uh, it wasn't just the forest, that, the forest public land that was damaged. So I, I think the bill is uh, absolutely necessary. I, I, let's go to another question. I note that there in your budget for this year, uh, 2023, there's $321 million allocated to management of hazardous fuels. And I'm very happy for the, uh, the effort to, to clean up, if you will, the forests that, that under your 10-year plan you're, you're working on. But I just want to know who's doing the work. Who's, who's out there actually reducing fuel loads in the forest? 
Yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, that's it's going to be a mix. I mean, we're approaching this as all lands, all hands approach. And, and as you as you know, we work with the states, as I mentioned before, good neighbor authority. We hopefully work with counties and so tribes. Let's, let's, stop, let's stop there. Okay. When I've gone out and looked and see who's doing the work, I see contract laborers doing the work. Most speak Spanish. And it looked to me like they were doing great work, working pretty hard, but they were working under a, a, a labor contractor generally or someone else of, of, of like nature. And I'm not... I'm happy they're out there doing the work. Mm -hmm. I just want to know, is that your observation? Is that who's actually out there uh, doing the work? Um, it, I think there are, in, in cases, that's an observation. Yes, it's not an observation. I've made, again, I came from Arkansas, worked on the Washtenaw National Forest. That was primarily Forest Service employees out there, both uh, uh, full-time firefighters as well as what we call the militia, reserve firefighters, working hand-in-hand -hand with the state and counties to do that work. Well, that would not be the case on the West Coast. It's just, and we have 90 million acres of forest now, it's not all federal, but the, the work that's getting done in significant part is being done by, by folks that are, are not uh, uh, what I'll call uh, found uh, anxious to do that kind of work. That's the, there's, there's the problem. I've fought fire before very badly, very poorly, uh, and, and uh, it, I realized really quickly it was hard, dangerous, dirty work. I've also gone out and cleaned up forests, believe it or not, when I was in high school, and it is hard, boring, hot to hot, and, and most people don't want to do it. That's why I became a lawyer, uh, so I wouldn't have to do it. And I'm just saying that it appears to me that the, the actual work that's being done to clean up the forest right now is, is primarily being done by, uh, by uh, immigrants. Uh, and I just, I just wanted you to comment on that one more time, but if you don't know, that's fine for you to say. Yeah, I, I don't have that in, in front of me. And, you know, I could talk to you about our wildland firefighter um, hiring numbers and those sorts of things. But I'm, I would just offer that it is a mix of contracts, it's agree, uh, partners through agreements, and our own employees. The last thing I'll mention, and sorry to have focused on you this entire time, but, but there's a, a huge part of Oregon is controlled by the Forest Service. We, there was a prescribed burn done not too far from where uh, one of my brothers has, has a ranch and has a grazing permit. And it was, it, was, it was badly managed, and there was an absolutely clear lack of respect by the Forest Service for the private land owners. Is there, can you comment on that? Is there someone overseeing these folks' activities? Because there seemed to be an arrogance level, a lack of respect that does not bode well for prescribed fires. Well, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that, and, and certainly there is a level of oversight. We have, you know, district ranger is a local line officer. You have your burn bosses that are qualified through our rigorous process, as well as forest supervisor and on up from there. So if that's the case, you know, we've, we've as escapes in New Mexico drove us to pause our prescribed fire activities, do a comprehensive review of that program and have made changes as a result of that. Thank you, I was Chair Yieldback. Thank you, Mr. Benz. Um, next, I'd like to recognize Mr. Moylan for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Heathaker, it's good to see you again. Yeah, you know, I hope you enjoyed the uh, informational trip we had to the Yale School of Forestry and the Yale Forest as much as I did. You know, uh, of course, it was very interesting to hear about the Yale Forest managers and the response to this complex challenge they have in their forest. You know, and for yourself, Troy, as, as someone who has spent time in a lot of different national forests across the country, can, can you just expand and talk about how important it is to empower individual forest services units to meet the unique needs facing their forest. 
Yeah, the examples, thank you for the question. It's good to see you again, too. It was a great trip. I enjoyed just the time together to talk forest policy and, and think about where we're, we're heading with how we manage these um, uh, great public lands that we're, that we're entrusted to steward. You know, the, the, trying to answer any question in the Forest Service, you know, with one answer is really challenging. I mean, we have forests from Florida all the way up to, you know, central Alaska. And, and so having the ability to shape management and activities based on those specific ecosystems, what the local public and the communities need in terms of resource management and benefits is, is um, it's a, it's, I wouldn't say it's a challenge, it's an opportunity for us. And so we have to be uh, flexible. We have to understand what those, um, each of those ecosystems, each of those forest types needs. And like I said, working across boundaries with the partners and being as collaborative as we can is, is really critical for us to get that work done. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, next question is for Mr. Johansson. You know, I believe the best solutions come from the ground up and are locally led. Uh, the, file, the Fire Sheds Act allows states and local en entities to address fire sheds on both federal and non-federal land. You know, how would this state and local knowledge help the Forest Service in treating more wildfire-prone areas? I mean, I think it just comes from, from local knowledge in, in the history of, of the forest. And as I said before, you know, um, as far down, it's, it's true in politics even, right? The most responsive is always how far down you can get to local, whether that's politics or whether that's managing a forest or, or a fire shed. Um, you know, uh, there's going to be more for, uh, you bring in the counties and you bring in the tribes um, who live there and it's their home, you're gonna have a much more responsive uh, uh, push to address the situation that the, that the, fire, that the forests need in terms of, of managing them. So I think ultimately too, you have another partner. You have another partner at the local level um, you know, to assist because we know that uh, the Forest Service in terms of acreage that they have to manage uh, is overwhelmed. We can see that in terms of even after a fire, we can only reseed up to 8,000 acres. Um, you know, a, a year. So I, I think it's imperative that you start looking locally and look down for more assistance for the, for the Forest Service and then even at the state level. Thank you for your response, panel. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. You will my time. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Moylan. And now I'd like to recognize Mr. Westerman, the chairman, for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Tiffany. Thank you to the witnesses for being here today. It seems like I've been out in the field with all of you at, at some point, and I appreciate your commitment to uh, forest stewardship and the good things that come from that. Um, Troy, thank you for you and uh, Deputy or Undersecretary Wilkes for joining us on the field hearing last week or field trip last week. And we saw how difficult the, uh, uh, you know, managing that forest in Connecticut can be with the various species and the management objectives, but they don't have any, they don't have to do NEPA, they don't have any regulatory uh, requirements they have to go through, they don't, they're not concerned about litigation. Throw all that on top of, of what the, uh, your folks at the Forest Service experience, and it makes your difficult, your job very difficult. And that's why as policymakers, we get frustrated because what we're looking at are results. We wanna see results on the ground, we wanna see acres treated, we wanna see CEs uh, used like Mr. McClintock has got passed that show great results on the ground. We want to expand those policies. Um, I just have to 
ask, did CEQ review your testimony before you uh, were able to submit it? Our testimony goes through a review process, yes. Yeah, that's enough said about that. Um, so I've been around you in the field. I know you know how to manage forests. You did a great job on the Washita National Forest. Um, and I know that you're a forester and you understand what needs to happen on the ground, but you're also working in this framework um, and this uh, environment that we've created here in Congress, and that's why we want to, to change that. Uh, can you speak a little bit about how, when, when you can do your job, how successful it can be? I know the Washita has been one of the uh, most productive forests in the country. It still needs a lot of work done on it, but even talk about the uh, shortleaf pine blue stem grass restoration project and how that's benefited the red cockaded woodpecker plus generated timber revenues to do more work on the forest. Yes, thank you, Chairman. And thank you for the, uh, the trip. It was a great opportunity, as I, as I previously mentioned, for us to um, talk about those shared interests and how we can help better steward these lands. And in my opening remarks, I, I did refer to the Washita as being the most productive and actively managed uh, one of them in the forest in the country. And I was surprised Chairman Tiffany didn't come back at me with Schwamigan Nicolay or one of those others. It's always a back and forth. But um, the, I think the work in the pine bluestem is just a shining example. If you look at how we accomplish the work through CFLRP, collaborative process, <clears throat> looking across land ownerships and working with partners literally hand in hand on a prescribed fire, and also being able to deliver commercial timber products to restore critical habit, habitat for a threatened and endangered species. Um, as a result of that work and the ability to do that work at pace and at scale, it led, I believe in no small part, to the downlisting of the red cockaded woodpecker. And just, again, balancing the, um, the needs of those ecosystems, <clears throat> the frequency of the treatments that's needed out there while delivering commercially viable products. It's and a, also it's, been I'm going to have to cut you off there. Oh, it's yes. a great example of how uh, you can have a healthy environment and a strong economy at the same time. The two go hand in hand. It's a great example of how the intent of the Endangered Species Act was followed, which you read the Endangered Species Act, and it talks about conservation and conservation and conservation. And uh, that's how the Forest Service and other agencies get their hands tied by fish and wildlife when they start listing species and saying leave their habitat alone. But uh, we need to do more projects like that. Cody, I got a chance to spend some time on the Colville Forest last summer, and I know uh, great work that tribes are doing all across the country, and I'm a, I'm a huge supporter of more good neighbor authority. We are talking about New Mexico earlier. I was down on the Lincoln National Forest. Uh, the Muscalera Apache tribe has some of the most beautiful uh, ponderosa pine stands that you'll see anywhere. And just down the road in Lincoln National Forest, it's a moonscape where tens of thousands of acres burned and have not even, uh, they don't even regenerate. It's, it's so bad. But um, talk about how important it is to grow good neighbor authority to get tribes more involved and what we can do to help make that happen. Right, so the legislation proposed today, I think, will accomplish that. 
But I mean, tribes are a great proving ground. We have the, the ecologic knowledge, the traditional ecologic knowledge of what the landscape should look like and how we accomplish that. And I think because we have fall under different regulatory frameworks, we can be examples and testing grounds for land management policies. And I think most folks that work with tribes recognize the great work that happens in Indian country. And we can use that blueprint on our adjacent federal lands and partner with them to make sure we accomplish those same management goals. Well, I look forward to, to working with you and um, all the tribes that are doing great work to hopefully greatly expand that uh, good neighbor authority. I'm out of time, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your questions. And I want to thank the witnesses for your testimony today. It is greatly appreciated. And we're going to move on to our third panel now. And while the clerk resets our witness table, I will remind the witnesses that are coming for our third panel that under committee rules, they must limit their oral statements to five minutes, but their entire statement will appear in the hearing record. I'd also like to remind our witnesses of the timing lights, which will turn red at the end of your five-minute statement, and to please remember to turn on your microphone. As with the first panel, I will allow all witnesses to testify before member questioning. Our witnesses for the third panel are Ms. Reva Duncan, Mr. Rick Goddard, Mr. Lawrence Crabtree, and Mr. Jonathan Godis. Did I say that correctly? Hope so. Okay, we're going to start uh, with Ms. Reva Duncan, who is the Vice President of Grassroots Wildland Firefighters. Uh, we look forward to your testimony um, in the next five minutes. 